Well, good morning. I hope everybody's doing well. And I was thinking, as Chad mentioned, it may be celebratory that he's not preaching. The unfortunate news is that you're stuck with me today, so I don't know if that gives you any comfort or not. Um, But it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning, and today we're going to be in John chapter 17, John chapter 17, particularly uh, in verses 14 through 23. Um, And so while you're turning there, because we haven't been going through a series through this text, I wanted to give us a little bit of background in the verses preceding it, uh, because I think it'll set the tone for what we aim to do today. And so um, first and foremost, John chapter 17 is known as the high priestly prayer. Uh, The reason being is because in this text, Jesus is praying to the Father right before he is about to go to the cross. Um, And so he's speaking just as the imagery is in Judaism, uh, where the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, and on the Day of Atonement would, uh, would offer a sin sacrifice for the people of Israel. And so in this case, Jesus is acting as the high priest for his people, and he is about to offer a sacrifice, except in this case, he himself is the sacrifice. And so as the high priest in this passage, Jesus is coming before the Father to pray for his people. He is speaking primarily of his disciples in this text, but the words are true for all of Christ's people. And so I wanted to give us just a brief little outline before we get going with this. And so um, in his prayer, verses 1 through 4, he starts with a declaration of who God is, who the Father is, and then also who he is as the eternal Son of God. He identifies that he's been sent by the Father. And then after this, verse 5 is actually a petition for the Father to glorify the Son in his eternal glory. And then that brings us to verses 6 through 26 in the rest of this chapter, Um, where Christ is petitioning the Father for the people of God. And so Christ is beginning to pray as a shepherd for his sheep. And so that's where we are today. Uh, We're going to be particularly in verse 14 through 23, as I mentioned. But I wanted to look at this text this morning because I'm convinced um, that it offers at least five points from the prayer of Christ that will prepare us to live in a world that opposes both the person of Christ and the message of Christ. So Um, I want to pray real quick, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for supplying it to us. God, I pray we would glorify you. I pray that I would honor you in the handling of your word, and I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts, that we would honor you and be a people um, that love you and serve you. It's your name I pray. Amen. Okay, John chapter 17, verses 14 through 23. It should be up on the screen for you. I'll read it for us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. 
So again, five points of preparation for us as Christians to live in the world. The first point is expect hatred from the world. Expect hatred from the world. Looking back at verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This first point is going to set the tone for the entire passage because the reality is that Christ knows that he's about to send his people out into a world that's going to be hostile towards them. He says that the world has hated them because they are not of the world. What does this mean? Well, clearly there's a distinct difference between the people of God and the people of the world. Perhaps even more stunningly, Jesus says that we, as the people of God, are not of the world just as he is not of the world. And this statement brings us back to similar words from Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. The interesting thing about Jesus' statement here is that he's distinguished himself from the world by saying that he is from above. This is speaking of the deity of Christ, that he is the eternal son of God who has come and lived uh, in the flesh among us. He is not of the world, and the world hated him for it. That's the message of Christ, of what he said. Listen to what he also says in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And so as we look here at the words of Christ, the message right here that Jesus is saying is that he's noting that the hatred of the world towards himself is not because of any fault in him, but rather because of the darkness that is in the world. And scripture makes clear this point over and over and over again, is that the desires of the natural man, those, those who are in the world, is contrary to the desires of God. At root, this is because Scripture tells us humans have refused to worship the creator and the God of the universe. Listen to what Romans 1, 21 through 23 says. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Isn't it amazing, the timeless truth of God's word? Romans was written about 2,000 years ago, and yet you look at our culture today, and these same phrases stick out. They did not honor him as God. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The object of worship may have changed, but the rejection of the one who deserves worship remains the same in our day as well. Those of the world will be opposed to Christ because they do not want to honor him as Lord. On the other hand, we as the church, we've been brought from darkness to light. We have been redeemed. We no longer seek to worship ourselves, but rather seek to worship God. As a result, because the world hates Christ, the world will thus hate the people of Christ. Jesus said that the world would hate his disciples, and the same is true in our day as well. So church, as we walk through this life, do not miss the warnings of Christ. We will face hatred and opposition as we go. Jesus gives us those warnings on purpose, that we might be prepared for it. He himself says in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Listen to what he also says in John 15, 18 through 19. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so as Christians, because we've been called by the one who is above, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And so thus we are different from those who are from the world. Scripture's clear on this, and we need to expect opposition as we live and proclaim the truth. This reality, this first point, is going to set the tone for the next four because the next four prepare us to live in a world that does hate us. So point number two, pray that God keeps us in the truth. Pray that God keeps us in the truth. This comes from verses 15 through 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so again, in the context of this passage, Jesus is praying as the high priest for his people just before he goes to the cross to die a substitutionary death. Christ speaks of himself as the guardian of the people to whom the Father had given him. And so Jesus notes that he has given them his Father's word, which has led to hatred from the world. And so as such, Christ prays that God would keep his people from the evil one, speaking to Satan. Ephesians 2.2 says that Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience, which is a reference to the people of the world. And so knowing the stakes of the battle, we ought to follow Christ's model here and pray that God would keep us in the truth in the midst of a sinful world because you will face opposition. And so the picture that we have here of Christ is that he's praying that God would sovereignly keep his disciples in a world that wanted to kill them. Notice Jesus' words in verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. What does this mean? Well, sanctify means to make holy or to set apart. And sanctification is the process by which believers become more like Christ. And so Christ's prayer is that we would be made holy through the truth, through the word. Our sanctification, note this, Christian, this is really important to know, our sanctification is guaranteed because Christ has secured it for us through his sacrifice. The ultimate work of sanctification comes from God himself. This is what 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we as believers don't play a part in our sanctification, because we clearly do. We see that truth throughout Scripture as well. But it's interesting that Scripture notes that even even our effort in sanctification comes from God. This is what Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, catch this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then note the next clause. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So sanctification, is it an act of God? Is it an act of man? And the answer is yes. It's primarily an act of God, but we do play a part in it. But even in Jesus' prayer in verse 11 of chapter 17 here in John, Jesus asks the Father to keep his people in his name. And so the message here is clear for us, is that if you are a believer, take heart in the fact that you are kept secure in Christ, not primarily due to your faithfulness, but due to his And we can take comfort in that. So he will see to it that you remain in the truth. It's in his power, and that's exactly why we pray. It's exactly why Jesus is praying to the Father to keep his people, because that's the request. God has the power to keep, and he will. So that's why we pray. So it's important that we continually pray to God for strength to continue in the truth, even in the midst of fierce opposition. So as people of God, let's pray that God would sanctify us in the truth, Because the word of Christ is our foundation in a world that has no foundation and is constantly shifting. Point number three, recognize that God's word is the truth. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
And this verse is so crucial to understanding how we can know God's will. We currently live in a world that devalues truth, in many cases even argues that it doesn't exist, or that it can be individualized. Have you ever heard the phrase, this is my truth? But the word of God speaks against this very idea. There's actually a really interesting exchange in John chapter 18, verses 37 and 38, where Jesus, um, after he's already been handed over to the authorities, and he's in the midst of Pilate, and Pilate's trying to decide what to do with him. Jesus tells Pilate, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says in verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? It's interesting that Pilate's question that he asks there is the exact same question that our society asks today. What is truth? The world clamors for there to be no such thing as objective truth, but Jesus makes clear that's not the case because he's just stated, for this purpose I was born, to bear witness to the truth. So what is the truth? And the answer to that is found back in John 17, 17, where Jesus says, your word is the truth, as he's speaking to the Father. So Jesus came to bring witness to the truth of God manifest in his word to a world that rebelliously rejected that truth. We're living in a world right now that devalues truth in such a way that it can deny even the most basic and evident truths, right? Whether it's uh, human sexuality, whether it's what the definition of marriage is, whether it's looking at creation and saying there's, and, and demanding evolution, demanding another answer, anything except for a sovereign God who's in control, because we don't want to be subject to the God who is in control. The root of all of this denial, everything, is, is that it's, it's rebellion to God's word. That's the simple root of it. And so for many of us, we live in a society that we may be looking around and we're saying, man, it's getting a lot worse and worse and worse. But I want to remind us that the people of the world have always opposed God. And because they've always opposed God, they will always oppose us this side of heaven. And so sin may play out in different ways throughout the generations, but it's always present. We've been looking at the book of Genesis um, on Sunday mornings here at the church. And so um, the root of all of this sin comes back to the original point in the Garden of Eden where Satan says to Eve, did God really say? Because the root of sin is a denial of the word of God. That's what it comes back to. The word of God, the Bible is under attack, but Christ makes it clear in this passage that we must stay in the word because his word is truth. So Christians, you can have total, you can have total confidence in the word of God because it is truth. The world will attempt to disparage the word, disprove the word, declare that those who proclaim the word are bigots, intolerant, whatever you want to say, but you can have total confidence that the word of God is the truth because it comes from the God who does not change or does not change his mind. Listen to Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Hebrews six eighteen. so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And one of the blanks uh, in your outline this morning is the word immutable. And I thought it was really important to bring this in because it's a theological term that means that God does not change, which means because he does not change, he cannot change for the better and he cannot change for the worse. That's incredibly good news for us because he is exactly who he says he is. And if God does not change, his word does not change. 
Listen to what Isaiah 40, verse 8 says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So as the people of God, let's recognize Scripture for what it is, the unchanging, inerrant word of God that we can trust to direct our lives. We are sanctified by this word. For the world, morality is a moving target, which ultimately is going to lead to an acceptance of the most grievous of evils. But for the word of the Lord, he has already stated what is good and what is evil in his word. And catch this, that standard does not change because the God who set that standard does not change. So why would we want to align with a world that is constantly shifting on things when the immutable, perfect God has said how things should be in his unchanging word? So today in our society, common calls for people to speak your truth, stay true to yourself, but to claim that sinful human beings should inherently trust their feelings and find truth within themselves has extremely perilous ramifications when we've already seen the deadliness of the nature of man. It's contrary to the nature of God. If our feelings or our truths contradict God's word, our feelings and our truths are sinful and wrong. As has been quoted by this pulpit many times, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So brothers and sisters, it is blasphemous for humans to declare their own truth that stands in contradiction to the God who declares himself to be the truth. As we look out to a world around us that is increasingly hostile to the word of God, it's not time to back down. It's time to press in and declare what God has said, which, because the word of God will expose the darkness with the light of Christ. And that brings us to the fourth point, and that is live on mission. Live on mission. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is saying that just as, he, just as the Father has sent him into the world, so he has sent us into the world. We've been sent for a purpose. We are messengers of truth. Again, looking back at John 18 with the exchange of Pilate, Jesus tells him that the purpose for which he came into the world was to bear witness to the truth. And then here in John 17, Jesus says that here that his people have been sent just as he was sent. So don't miss that. Our purpose as believers is to bear witness to the unchanging truth of God revealed in Christ to an ever-changing world. That's why we've been sent into the world, to bear witness to the truth just as Christ did. Why is this important? Well, Jesus tells us why in verses 20 through 21. He says that there will be people who come to believe in him through their word, meaning we who've been sent, that they may all be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The people of God should be united by their commitment to the word of God and the faithfulness to share the word of God. Notice how crucial the church's sanctification and truth is to Christ in verse 19. He says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. When he says that he's consecrating himself, he's referring to the fact that he's about to set himself apart as the sacrifice for the sins of his people. Jesus is literally saying that he is sacrificing himself for his people in order that they would be sanctified in the truth. So why is it so important that we as the church hold to God's truth? Because our Savior died that we would be sanctified in that truth. This is very similar to Ephesians 5, 25 through 26. Paul says that Jesus gave himself up for the church to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water 
with the word. Christ died to gather a people for himself, purified by the washing of the gospel and sanctified by the power of the word. As such, our lives should be full of light in a dark world that we, and for the purpose that the world may see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven, is what Jesus says. As Christians, we're called to live on mission and be ambassadors for Christ. Paul says, God making his appeal through us. We implore others on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And this understanding will also keep us from making the dreadful mistake of believing that we are at war with the people of the world. We're not at war with the people of the world. We are called to love those who hate us because Christ loved us when we hated him. We're not at war with the people of the world, but we are at war with the ideas of the world that are contrary to God's word. Listen to Ephesians 6.12. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so thus, the proponents of these ideas that are contrary to the word of God are opponents of God. But, here's the catch, thanks be to God that Christ came to die for his enemies, of which we once were, in order to reconcile sinners to himself. Listen to Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so believing this, we make our appeal through the conduct of our lives and our commitment to share the word of God. Namely, that sinful men and women can be reconciled to a holy God through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. This is the message that we've been entrusted with, and it's the message that Christ has sent us into the world with because he came to save sinners. He came for the people of the world that opposed him. We've been tasked with the calling to take the message to a people that wants no part of it, but we can have confidence as we go because Jesus tells us that his word will change hearts. His light will penetrate the darkness. So be bold in your proclamation of the word. Be bold. Lastly, number five, surround yourself with people of the truth. Verses 20 through 21 and 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So Jesus speaks of the unity of his people here, which he says should be a glorious portrayal of the Godhead, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Christians have been sanctified in the truth, sent into the world with the truth, and we should be united with other believers through the truth. The gospel is a message, and as believers and proclaimers of this message, we are united with others across the planet who have also uh, accepted this message, responded to the good news. Jesus asks the Father in verse 20 that his people may all be one as a testament to the reality of who Christ is. This is really difficult if all the people of, the God, of, if, if all the people of God live separately and do not live among one another, exhort one another. And so Jesus is making the point here that's made throughout all of Scripture. There is no biblical category for private Christianity. You cannot be united to Christ without also being united to his people. We live in a world where many proclaim different messages of truth, but we are united with others who have been purchased by Christ, the truth. 
And so, Friendship Baptist Church, I just want to commend you as a church that this is a body that is not being swayed by the abounding truths of this world, but instead holds firmly to the absolute truth of God's word. So don't budge when the world tells you God's word is outdated, irrelevant, uh, applicable only to ancient culture. Those attacks have been levied for generations but remember that God himself has declared that his word will stand forever. Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Jesus said that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And therefore, if not even an iota of his word will pass away, we should not move even an inch from what it says. So stand firm. Stand firm in what God's word says. The challenge of the truth may only increase as time goes on, but the reward remains the same, Christ Jesus. And it's much easier to abide in his word when we abide with other believers. The author of Hebrews says, Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so thus our mutual exhortations with other believers help us from becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why the proclamation of truth among the body of Christ is so important because it keeps us aligned in the truth of God's word since we live in a world of falsehood and deceit. And so lastly, uh, God's word makes clear that the way of producing this unity that Christ speaks of is done in the context of the local church. Note Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's plan of producing unity of faith and truth in his people is found in the gifting of those very people to build each other up in his name. And so fellowship is vital for the believer. And if the aim of that fellowship is to build up in the knowledge of truth and sanctification, the basis for it must be God's word, which is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, sanctification. And last point that I wanted to note here, um, there have been movements throughout history um, that say that we should pursue unity at all costs. But that's not what Jesus just said here. Look back in verses 21 and 23. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Here we go. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So what is he saying? The purpose of our unity is that others would know the truth. Note this, if the goal of Christian unity is the advancement of the truth, then the very basis of Christian unity must be adherence to the truth. If the goal of the Christian unity is the advancement of the truth, then the very basis of Christian unity must be adherence to the truth. Unity must not be pursued at the cost of truth. Our witness depends on standing for truth. So as we finish up this morning, um, we should have hope. Despite the first point that says that, that the world will hate us and oppose us, we can take heart because right as Jesus is praying this prayer, shortly thereafter, he went to the cross and he took care of sins. He atoned for the sins of the people in this room. And so we celebrate because we walk in victory. Christ has already conquered death. Colossians says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's already won. Victory is secure. So walk in the power of Christ today. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Even though you walk in a dark world, you are a beacon of light in it. 
So perhaps you're here with us today, and maybe you've been walking among the world. Uh, maybe you have been opposed to God's truth, or maybe you've been burnt by the church. I, I don't know your particular situation, but I can tell you the best news in all the world is that Christ has come to save sinners. He's come to bring those from death to life, and so that opportunity is here for you this morning, that you would turn from your sin and rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ, the God-man, has come to live the perfect life in your place, and he died the death that you deserve to die, and then he rose from the dead um, victoriously so that all who believe could have eternal life. So if that's true for you, or, or if you're here this morning and perhaps you want to be a part of this truth, um, there's going to be a couple of us up here to pray with you and share with you. And finally, church, let's walk in the truth, no matter the cost. Keep in mind that as Jesus is pr he's praying primarily for his disciples, all of them except for one ultimately went to their graves because of their holding to and proclamation of the truth. But listen to verse 12 of John 17. Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. God will keep his people, even in the midst of fierce opposition. You're being guarded by Christ. John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and Hebrews says that Jesus lives always to make intercession for his people today. You're being guarded by Christ. You're being held by Christ. So as we live in a world that is hostile to the word of God, don't be ashamed to proclaim it because the message of Christ has the power to save souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and how you loved us and how you've chosen us and kept us in a world that um, wants to take us out, Lord God, and squash your message. And I just pray that we would honor you as people and that we would proclaim your truth boldly knowing that you are in control, Lord God, and that you've loved us. And I just pray that as a church that we would be people that would honor you, hold to your word, um, and that we would have unity of faith, Lord God, in proclamation of that message. It's your name I pray. Amen.